Good morning and welcome. We're so glad that you're here today. So thankful that you've chosen to be with us at Midway. We do have several faces who have been away, living in different places and other things. Some who've been sick. We are glad that you're back with us today. And if you uh, have not been a regular here, we do not know you very well. We'd love to get to do that. We'd love for you to be able to to be a part of our family here at the Midway Congregation. I want to begin this morning as we think about our lesson together. I want to think about something that was said by a man who lived a long while back. Uh, he passed away in 1970. You may have heard his name somewhere along the way. His name was Bertrand Russell. He was born in the late 1800s and lived to 1970. But Mr. Russell said this. He says, There's one serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character. Now let's stop right there and think about it for just a moment. To make an accusation against the moral character of Jesus Christ is something that you know I really have a problem with to begin with. And, and yet here's a man who's willing to make a moral accusation against Jesus Christ. He says, the, the one serious defect in my mind in Christ's moral character, and, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. The one thing that he found against Christ is that he believed in hell. You know, there are a lot of people who have a problem with the concept of hell. Back in 19, or 2014, there was a survey that was done by the Pew Research Group. They found that about 58% of Americans believe in hell. Now, the breakdown of that is something like this. Of those folks who have no religious affiliation or have some sort of religious affiliation that is not associated with Christianity in any form, about 29% of those people believe that there was some place or something, some entity called hell. And I can imagine that. I can understand that those who have no religious background or those who have no background in the Bible would have a hard time understanding the concept of hell. But when you go and you break it down and you begin speaking to those who claim in some way to have an affinity for Christ, to have, have an allegiance to Him in some way, who, who in some way relate themselves to Christianity, and we'll put that in quotes this morning, only about 70% of those people believed in hell. And so no wonder only 58% of the folks in the United States now, through the survey, it found that, that they believed in, in hell. And, and you know what? When we think about hell, it, it's something that has become politically incorrect, hasn't it? A lot of Christians even want to, to push it somewhere under the rug and have it somehow whitewashed over with the eternal divine love of God. And we do believe that He is a divine loving God. And I'll readily admit this morning that I would much rather be preaching on heaven today than preaching on hell. We talked about heaven some last week. But in order to be able to say that we have, have looked at the entirety of God's Word, that, that, that we're preaching the whole counsel of God, we have to take a, a look sometimes at subjects like this one. Some people say when, you're, when you mention the word hell, they'll say, well, really? You know, is there really such 
a place. We want to spend a few minutes this morning as we think about that. And we'll deal with it perhaps in a biblical way. Maybe some of the things that we'll say today you've heard in the past. They're simply refreshers for us. Perhaps some of the things will be new to our mind, but they will help us to understand more about God's Word and what it has to say in regard to hell. Let's just think this morning about Jesus. You see, there's an accusation made against him by Bertrand Russell. Did Jesus really believe in hell? Mr. Russell believed that Jesus believed in hell, but, but it seems, you know, like, like some Christians don't believe that Jesus believed in hell. Did he really and truly believe in hell? Now, I did not take time to read this and count these all up for myself. But I'm told that there are 1,850 verses in the New Testament that are words of Jesus, recorded words of Jesus. 1,850. And again, I didn't take time to, uh, to, to actually do the calculations myself, but according to those who I would trust, about 13% of the words of Jesus have to do with eternal judgment and hell. Out of those 1,850, 13% of them have something to say about eternal judgment and hell. That's a lot that Jesus had to say about hell. As a matter of fact, when we think about Jesus, he really had more to say about hell in the New Testament than he did about heaven. And we'd rather hear about heaven, and I'd rather preach about heaven, but Jesus, he really and truly told us more about hell and eternal punishment than he did about heaven itself. And so today as we think about Jesus and and what he said, what he believed, what he taught about hell, what are some of the things that, that we need to know? Number one this morning, let me simply remind us that when Jesus taught about hell, Jesus taught that hell is a place. Hell is a place. Now let's open up our Bibles and do a little reading, do a little studying. In the book of Luke chapter 16, verse 28, we remember the story of a rich man and a man who is called Lazarus. And they both passed away. We, we remember the story. But when the rich man lifted up his eyes, the Bible says he lifted up his eyes. If you're reading from the King James Version, it says hell. Literally, it's the word Hades. Somewhere in that not seen realm, that depository of spirits, where both the, the, the righteous who have died and the unrighteous who have died, where they're being kept for eternal judgment. The Bible speaks about this man lifting up his eyes and he was being in torments. But in verse 28 of that passage, as he is speaking to Abraham, the Bible says that this man is begging and he said, I've got five brothers. I, I Send Lazarus back and warn him. I've got five brothers and tell them so that they may be warned lest they also come to this place of torment. P-L-A-C-E. Place. Another passage. Keep that one in your mind. We'll come back to it in just a second. Acts chapter 1, verse number 25. In that passage, we have Judas under discussion. And the Bible says that they're choosing one to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now when Jesus prayed back in John chapter 17, he prayed for his apostles and he says that he kept all of them in his, in God's name. 
except for the one. He kept all of them and guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, he said, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus talks about Judas. Luke writes about Judas in the book of Acts chapter number 10. And when the Bible speaks about Jesus talking about Judas, he says that I lost him so that he could go to his own destruction. And he calls him the son of destruction. But but Luke says he went to his own place. In John chapter 14 at verse 2, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. He's talking about where his disciples would be able to go, and he calls where he is going to prepare for them a place. It's interesting that it's the same word that's used for heaven, and having a place in the Father's house that we talked about last Sunday morning, that that is called a place, and at the same time, when we have the place of eternal destruction or eternal punishment mentioned, it too is called a place. Called a place by the writers of the New Testament, called a place by Jesus. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, the Bible says, This is at the judgment day, and these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Folks, think about this. You can't have one group of people, the righteous, going to a place and the the other group going to some kind of imagination or some kind of thought. You can't have one going to a, a place and the others going to a state of mind. That's what some people think. Jesus speaks about that eternal place of punishment as a place itself. So we need, to, we need to realize that. Jesus speaks about it being a place, but when Jesus taught about it, he taught about it being a place of horrendous suffering. A place of horrendous suffering. In Luke chapter 16, verse 24, we mentioned Luke 16 a moment ago. Again, as this rich man called out, he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. It's in Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames. In anguish. Mark chapter 9, verses 47 and 48, the Bible says, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. When we're reading from the book of Luke, chapter 16, I've already mentioned that the rich man lifted up his eyes on Hades, Hadiah, the place of uh, the unseen spirits. But Jesus goes on and he speaks about Gehenna. Not just Hades, but Gehenna, that, that place. But in that place where a man like uh, the rich man was in anguish, and there's also torment in fire. I used to believe when I was a, a young preacher that if I could just describe fire, I could describe hell. And, and I used to say something like this. How many of you have ever t- touched a hot light bulb or, or a hot stove and been burned? And you know, we think about that and we talk about that, but, but here... 
this suffering doesn't burn the body up, doesn't burn the, the person up. If I left my hand in a stove long enough, it would eventually just cook, cook away, wouldn't it? But not in hell. It's a place of horrendous suffering. But let's focus again back there in Mark chapter 9, verses 47 and 48. He, he says that there's a place where the worm does not die. If you're looking in the original language, the word that's used there is the word scolex. And when I look up the word scolex, what I find is a worm that feasted on dead bodies. Now when he says the worm doesn't die, it means that it's got plenty of supply. In other words, it's an illustration that Jesus is using that, that this suffering is going to go on and on and on. That body will continue to be there. Oh yes, there is a body in hell. That's one of the things that we learn. The Bible says in the book of Matthew chapter 10 verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Those in hell will have a body. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter number 12 at verse number 2, Daniel had something to say about that. Sometimes we overlook what is said in the Old Testament about the resurrection because we, we tend to think that, well, they didn't really talk about it, but Daniel did. In Daniel chapter 12 at verse number 2, the Bible says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's a lot like what is said in the book of John, chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. At that hour there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Back in Daniel chapter 12, some will be raised to life. That, that resurrection of the body that's discussed in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as well as other passages in the New Testament, but here, some will be raised to everlasting life, and some. Some of those who are, did you notice what Daniel said? Who are sleeping in the dust of the earth. He's speaking of the body. The body resurrected. But those who are not righteous to everlasting shame and contempt. Those words are very descriptive when you're looking at them. The first one signifying the, the term for shame signifies reproaches in the sense of, of being the victim of a reproach. In other words, whatever it is that's raised from the body or raised from the dust, those who are sinful and unrepentant, unrighteous, they will be the victim of reproach. Reproach by God. Not only does he use the word shame, but he also uses the word contempt. The word contempt suggests the idea of, of to repel, to be, uh, to, to be abhorrent, if you will. The old body 
that's raised to be punished in hell? Is suffering reproach from God? And the description from Daniel seems to be that it's very unattractive what's going, what's happening, that the body itself won't be a, one of a handsome hunk or a, a glamour girl, as Brother Wayne Jackson put it. But the idea is this suffering. Suffering. The Bible and Jesus described that, or taught that hell is a place of horrendous suffering. But not only that, Jesus taught that hell is an eternal place of suffering. I've been hinting all around that this morning, eternal place. Many promote what's called annihilationism. In other words, they'll be redeemed from hell. They'll, they'll, they'll have a time there and then they'll either cease to exist or go somewhere else. But in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, at verse 46, these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hold that in your mind. Think about what is said in the book of Revelation 14, verse 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. But then again, contrast that with Revelation chapter 22 at verse 5. The night will be no more. They will need no lamp or uh, light or lamp of sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What's the point? Eternal punishment. Eternal life. Torment that goes on forever and ever. And God and his people reigning forever and ever. The point is this. However long heaven lasts, that's how long hell will last. You see, they're described in the same terms, with the same words. And so Jesus teaches that hell is an eternal place of suffering. What if Jesus is wrong about hell? What if he's wrong about hell? Two things. If he's wrong about hell, then he's either sincerely wrong, he really and truly believed that what he said was right. But if he's sincerely wrong about hell, then that disqualifies him from being the Son of God because he really didn't know what awaited people on the other side. Or, if he's not sincerely mistaken, then he was... Deceptive. And if he's deceptive, that too disqualifies him from being the Son of God. He wasn't even a nice person, much less the sinless Son of God. Because if he was deceptive, he intentionally misled people. You see... If you accept that Jesus is the Son of God, it's impossible to dismiss what he said about the fate 
of the disobedient. If you accept him and hold on to him as the true and living son of God, you have to believe what he said. Because anything else dismisses him from being the son of God. In this morning, this morning, in the time that we have remaining, maybe we should ask the question, is it really fair for God to uh, send people to hell? Is it really fair? Many people ask that. Is it fair for him to send people to hell? Preacher, I know what Jesus said, but... And then they offer some kind of excuse, you know, or some kind of reasoning that says, okay, now, now I know what he said, but preacher, have you considered this? You know, here's some of the things that folks say. I know what, God's, what Jesus said, but, but really and truly, God is too loving to send people to hell. Just too loving to send people to a place of, of punishment like that. Well, folks, I want you to think about this for a moment. Look at the book of Psalm 50, verses 16 through 22. Let's read that together. There the Bible says, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast by words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Oh, that hits home. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none of you, none to deliver you. You see, some of these arguments, including the one that God is just too loving, assume some things about God. They assume that we're like him. They assume that we're really not that bad. But in reality, it's a lot different, isn't it? We think there are some bad folks in life. We can name some of them. Adolf Hitler, you know, in the last century, he was a bad guy. And Saddam Hussein was probably a bad guy. And, and, and Charles Manson from years gone by. And, and there are folks today who are killing people and beheading them and, and they're really bad guys and doing all kinds of things. and They're raping little babies and doing all thing, kinds of things to children. There are some really, really bad people out there. We, we, we think that. You know, the geographical distance between the North and the South Pole is... It's pretty good, isn't it? It's a pretty long way from one end of the go around from one side to the other. But really and truly, it's nothing compared to where we are on earth to the closest star. Not even to mention the farthest star away, is it? You know, we're talking a distance of a few thousand miles and 
Then we get into light years. But the distance between us and our morality, our way of thinking, and God, there's no comparison in distance that we can make. See, God's not like us. We try to make Him in our image, but we simply can't do it. You see, Robert Jeffress, he is a denominational preacher out in Texas, he makes a statement that I fully agree with. He says, But our willingness to tolerate evil is due not to our righteousness, but our unrighteousness. Our ability to dismiss sin in others as well as ourselves is evidence of our unholiness and not our holiness. We try to make God like us, but it's because we're a lot more like the sinner than we are the one who made us. We can't make that assumption and be right with God. Somebody says, well, some think that it's just too severe punishment for wrong beliefs. Did you listen to what Brother Randy read this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 29? He spoke about those who under the law of Moses were put to death without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Then he makes a comparison in that reading. He says, but what about those who mistreat Jesus, who fail to listen to him, who will not obey him. He says, it's much worse for those who would take the blood of the covenant or the Son of God and throw him out in the road and trample on him as though he were nothing. Like throwing pearls in a pig pen. Same word is used there. And letting the pigs trample all over the valuable jewels. Salt in a road. Same word is used in Scripture in regard to that. Treating Christ as though he is no more valuable than an animal. We profane the blood of Christ. He mentions here, you see the Jews thought that the Gentiles were profane people and treated them like dogs. That's what we're doing to the Son of God when we fail to listen to Him and obey Him. Of how much more severe punishment are they deserving who have done all of these things? Well, to punish folks eternally is unjustified. Somebody says, very quickly, look at Romans chapter 9, verse 22 in your Bible. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That word prepared is the same word that's used in other passages uh, to mend a net. 
or even to, to prepare the world, to frame the world. And, and so what he says about these here, some are prepared for destruction. Now does that mean that God created them, framed them, prepared them so that they would be punished? No, not necessarily. You see, the question is, who made the preparation? And if you look through and do some research, what you're going to find is the text doesn't really say who it is, but the way that it's written in the original language makes it very possible that the ones who did the preparation are the people themselves. They had prepared themselves for destruction. The life that they lived, the refusals that they made when invitations were given, the rejection of the Word of God continually in their life was those people paving their path to destruction. They chose it themselves. How many of you have ever sung the old camp song? We used to sing it some when I was taking my kids to camp. If I don't get to heaven, I remember how it goes, don't you? It will be nobody's, 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 no, 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 nobody's fault but mine. Folks, if I go to hell eternally, it will be nobody's fault but mine. You see, to argue that, well, God, it's wrong for you to send people to hell eternally is to miss the point. God made it possible so we didn't have to. Right? He sent his son. But we're the ones who either choose to accept or reject our Lord. What a tragedy when we choose wrongly. If you picked up a bulletin this morning, you noticed that there was a poll that was cited on the front page, 4% of people believed that they were going to hell. Just admit it, I'm probably going. 19% were uncertain whether they were going to hell, and 77 believed that there was little chance that they could possibly go to hell themselves. Another poll showed that those who believed in hell, only 56% said they knew someone who might go to hell. Our thought processes, the way we speak, the actions that we take somewhat betray us. Hell? Really? Really? Did Jesus believe in it? You better believe it. What's more, he said the majority of those who are living on earth will be making their way down the wide and the broad path that leads there. Not 4%. Not 19 The majority. 
There are three, three implications this morning I want you to think about. Number one, for the disobedient, those who have never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, could I beg and plead with you to accept what Jesus said in his word, to believe in him as the Son of God, to make the great confession after you've repented of your sins, to be baptized, to have your sins washed away so that you can go and live eternally with God like we talked about last week. Implication number two for those who are believers, those who have done that, we need to rejoice over what we've been spared from and become happy, faithful, serving saints of the Lord, doing our best to keep others from going to a place of punishment. For the church, number three, what we do matters. You see, we're on a rescue mission, rescuing people from eternal damnation. All three of these things are implications that need to be thought about because of what Jesus taught about hell. We may ask the question, hell, really? Jesus would answer us, yes. But don't worry about it. I've made it possible for you to stay away. The question is, this morning, and every day that we awaken, we answer that question. Am I going to live my life? Am I going to do what the Lord asked me to do? what he made it possible for me to do in order to avoid it. It may be this morning that you're here and you're seeing in your life you've never obeyed the gospel. If you need to know more, we'd love to study more with you. If you know today what you need to do, let us assist you with that. Maybe you're here and there's something that you need to make right in a public way. You haven't been living what God wants you to do. Why not do that right now as together we stand and sing?